Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today, today is our conclusion episode for our Bleak House series, which we started in April and it is now September and we're finally finishing this wonderful, epic novel. I have a couple of fun segments today and we'll just jump right in. The first is my thoughts on the ending. So I enjoyed the ending. So much of this book, as I talk about pretty obsessively in the last episode on serials 19 and 20, is cyclic. I think that the cyclic nature of the book is no accident. There's so many symbols that kind of represent this cyclic tendency. Not only the actual writing in the book of Esther's narrative, Esther's narrative, appearing over and over again throughout the different portions of the book and the chapters deliberately being called such over and over again, but we also have these overarching, what I call aerial or bird's eye view kind of scenes where there's a view of Bleak House or there's a view of Chesney Wald, there's a view of Tom All Alone's in London, and it's a very abstracted, omniscient third person, of course, kind of view of these different places. Those happen again and again with the same locations, so that's also a cyclic part. They kind of are interspersed, these the Esther's narrative and the overarching description scenes. There's also so many symbolisms like clocks in the novel, the portrait of date Lady Deadlock coming up again and again. There are the court itself, which is the central piece of this whole book in itself, and the court has terms, right? that are cyclically starting at the same point every year and Mr. Tolkienhorn and this picture of Adam and his hand on Tolkienhorn's office ceiling, that coming up again and again, and these kind of rounds that Tolkienhorn and other characters, especially I think Mr. Snagsby and Crook and the little habits and routines of these little characters, all of those things contribute to the clockwork, so to speak, of this book and contribute to the commentary on the fact that the Court of Chancery is this cyclic, steady thing that you can certainly rely on for that much, at least, and yet it gets nothing done. It's so inefficient, it's so honestly disastrous for those all around it, and every character in this stunning novel is somehow influenced by the Court of Chancery, which again, nothing in this book is an accident. There's hundreds of characters in the cast, right? Some we only meet a couple times, you know, in the politics scene scenes, for example, some we stick with, like Lady Deadlock or like Esther, but all of these characters are influenced or modified or characterized in some respects by the court in some way. I think of Richard, I think of Voles, 
or even people like John Jarndyce, who want nothing to do with the court and yet are defined by their antagonism to the court. So in terms of my thoughts on the actual ending, how it ends in the middle of the sentence and such, I super enjoyed it. So much of the book is foreshadowed and so is this ending. Esther says, I'm having a really hard time coming to a close because for some reason or another I've enjoyed this writing session and I'm just having a really hard time coming to a close. Of course it's very long so I can understand that. And it's almost like, in my mind, she had like an emergency with one of Woodcourt's patients or one of her children or little Richard or someone coming to the door and she just left the narrative as was as it was and said that's the ending and I quite like that aspect of it in in the sense that it's so continuous it it's almost like Bleak House is ongoing in that respect and it continues on and this is in my view, right, page number wise, not word count wise, the longest book by Charles Dickens. And I quite like, again, that kind of leaving off in the middle of the sentence and leaving off in the middle of the cycle because you know the cycle is just going to continue on. I also constantly was commenting on the show about how one of my biggest gripes about Esther was on how much her beauty or lack thereof kept bothering her and really, I, I think, put a veil on her narrative in general and her ability to pick up on things or deliver them faithfully to us as the reader. And I think that having this conversation between Alan and herself, basically saying, look, you don't see yourself like everyone else does, uh, was the perfect conversation to end on because I think it shows a really strong future not only for Esther's view of herself but for this little family unit that she has uh, created. And, you know, looking at the broad ending, the last several chapters, maybe the last two serials even of the novel, it's, it is ultimately bittersweet, right? There's so much going on, there's so many moving pieces, I quite like the analogy of the book being kind of a clockwork, actually, because there's just so many intricate bits and pieces that you've got to keep track of within this narrative, characters notwithstanding. And, you know, of course there are casualties. Richard, Lady Deadlock, for example. And we never hear about Jenny, I don't think. <laughs> That's one of the big questions I had. You know, you can leave a comment on this episode if you did find something about Jenny and just you want to tell me. Um, and George is, though, you know, reunited with his family. Miss Flight releases her birds. Huge symbolic moment there. Esther marries Woodcourt, not John Jarndyce. So there are a lot of good things, right, about the ending of the book, how things turn out. It is, I would say, ultimately a happy ending. That's for you to decide. And I think maybe Dickens, sort of the tone of that last section was happier because it ended on Esther. It didn't end on the omniscient, bleak narrator. Uh, and that to me is pretty optimistic. Second question or topic for today is, how was this book originally serialized and who made up the chapter names? 
This was really my biggest question in terms of organization slash history of this book, going through it. I am somewhat familiar, I mean, I've read a lot of Dickens, right? I've, loved, I've read almost a dozen Dickens novels at this point, maybe even a dozen, so it's, you know, it's, I'm very familiar with the serialization process and what's going on here and sort of what Dickens was aiming at with this kind of release process, but uh, yeah, I had to look this one up. I was not familiar with this from the outset. Um, you can find my sources, of course, as per usual, in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode. I've got every book that I reference in the next section in there as well, so if you hear a book and you don't want to remember it or write it down or you're unable, uh, you're driving or something, then you can definitely reference those titles and, of course, the sources again in the show notes. So Bleak House is Dickens' 13th major work and 9th novel, definitely placing it in the latter of his works overall, for sure. And there's so many things about it, you know, it being called Bleak House gives you enough clue that it's in his later repertoire. He was much more into, like, humor. He did a lot of social commentary towards the middle of his career. I think of Oliver Twist as the primary example. Um, and this is certainly, you know, it falls under those earlier themes somewhat with, you know, crooks, spontaneous combustion, etc. Um, but yeah, definitely the seriousness of it and the darkness of it um, and kind of the despair underpinning the whole book are just classic features of his later work, the complexity of it as well. Um, it was originally published as a serialization in 20 monthly installments, and the last installment consisted of the last two serials in a so-called double installment, which is why we organized our last two episodes, 1718 and 1920, as we did and not as we had been doing before, because there's really no distinguishing between serials 19 and 20, and I wanted to keep them very tightly together. And from everything I can tell, Dickens seems to have written the chapter titles himself, which I found really interesting and actually kind of helpful because I had thought originally that an editor or someone had gone in and written these chapter titles to kind of make it easier on the reader in terms of transitions, etc. And I was going, you know, I'm not sure about these chapter titles some somewhat but it makes me feel better inside that <laughs> Dickens actually wrote the chapter titles himself, and it it does make sense, right? Because there's this kind of, again, the cyclic thing of Esther's narrative over and over, and the chapter titles are just, they're, you know, they're very descriptive, and they are so much like Dickens, so I'm, I'm glad to have found that out. Our third topic today is literary cross-comparisons. I love doing these, so I'm super pumped for this. And this is just pure, honestly, just pure fun for me, looking through the novel and finding out different, almost, connections that I can make across literature from this time period and others. The first, I think, may surprise some people, but may not, and it is Dracula by Bram Stoker and this novel. 
And the scene or the part that really cued me into the connections here, I mean, notwithstanding the general descriptions of London, I think Tom All Alone's and kind of the desolate nature of that place really cues in to some of the descriptions of London in Dracula. And Dracula is ultimately, I think, very hilariously about real estate, right? It's about uh, Dracula reaching out to Jonathan Harper, wanting essentially to inquire about getting a castle in London. <laughs> and then he ends up through the novel getting several apartments and other properties in London. <laughs> he ends up acquiring those and then when Jonathan and his crew decide to go kill Dracula, they have to raid all of these apartments that he's <laughs> bought and they have to destroy his coffins and uh, big crates full of dirt <laughs> that Dracula has sent there, which again, hilarious and, you know, maybe a different telling of the classic story than is in the mainstream media. So, I mean, that almost like chicken hunt of these free range chicken apartments in London so reminds me of when uh, Esther and Bucket are running around not only London but the greater London area in a snowstorm trying to find Lady Deadlock. There's that same kind of mood of, and the pacing is similar, right? There's this hurry, there's this urgency, there's kind of this like ultimate push that's driving this whole thing and it's a super important goal in both of them and the descriptions of London, the descriptions of the scenery and the weather are consistent throughout both of those general scenes in the texts. So Dracula and Harper finding Dracula's apartments throughout London and Esther and Bucket finding Lady Deadlock in all these various places throughout London is my first literary cross-comparison. Number two, this is just so silly, but <laughs> I would say there's a cross-comparison between Twilight Breaking Dawn and this. Uh, when John Jarndyce gives Esther her house and it's made to her exact qualifications, isn't that so much like when Esme gives Bella the house for her birthday, right? I mean, I'm, I'm like looking at these two scenes like, wait, basically this is the same. I mean, different circumstances obviously, but kind of the same gesture. Number three is Agnes Grey. I mean, I think Agnes Grey, I mean, Agnes Grey, right, one of my favorite books of all time, which is super high praise. Uh, Esther and Agnes are so similar and I think there's this common trope of how to write women in the latter half or the mid half of the 19th century and how to write you know this specific kind of woman who's you know robust and who does things on her own i think of mrs bagnet almost in a sense of you know mrs bagnet takes all these trips by herself and she essentially runs the whole household and she runs mr bagnet and the children as well and i kind of think of that mold being so set by Agnes Grey as an example and essentially not being copied here with Esther but I mean Esther um we'll talk about this in the fun facts but 
Esther is the only female narrator in all of Dickens's works, and so I think of this as a really profound showcasing of what Dickens saw as how to write women in this particular time period. And I think it's um, this character is a really excellent snapshot, as Agnes Grey is, uh, in in terms of looking at how women are portrayed and and kind of the outstanding qualities of great women. Also, I think that the love stories between them coming kind of, you know, I don't want to say too little too late, but you know, it's kind of this like long, slow thing of like they mention it. I think of like in Agnes Grey, right? Mr. Weston gets introduced really early on and then there's this kind of like you know, building up. There's like a couple scenes where he like walks her home here and there after church and then he like gets her that flower from across the way and then he they move apart for a while, right? And then he comes back and they find each other serendipitously. And then at the very, very end of the book, at the last page of Agnes Grey, they get married and they end up having children. And everyone adores Mr. Weston and her because they're such good people and they serve the community. What happens in Bleak House? Other than Esther and Woodcourt meet early on, Woodcourt leaves for his stint abroad, and he gives her a flower right before he leaves, which Esther keeps in a book and later is embarrassed about, but she tells us about it anyway, strategically, because after Mr. Woodcourt gets back from said journey, which is a, quite a bit of span of the book, he and her serendipitously meet when she is uh, far away traveling to meet Richard at his seaport destination when he's still a soldier. They meet serendipitously. Their relationship develops further, but alas, she can't have Mr. Woodcourt because she's engaged to John Jarndyce. When she marries him at the last second, like within the last few chapters in the book, and has children, they are adored because they serve their community. I'm just saying. Number four, Emma by Jane Austen. I mean, I was thinking sort of about, again, these like women and how they're portrayed around this time in literature, especially in British literature. And I'm looking at Emma and Mr. Knightley and how Mr. Knightley's kind of older than her and that kind of relationship dynamic between them. And I'm looking at Esther and Cousin John. I'm like, yeah, a little bit similar. I mean, the age difference isn't, you know, say what you will about it. I don't mind it at all. But there is this kind of power imbalance in the, both of those situations and I think that's one of the things in Esther's situation in particular. I mean it's different for Emma because Emma has uh, had this kind of seed in her for a long time, she just doesn't like admit it to herself until later is one way of interpreting that whole thing. Um, Esther, on the other hand, has kind of had this guy over her for a lot of her recent upbringing in the past few years, you know, through the Bleak House novel. So, yeah, it's, it's similar and it's not, but yeah, I was a little uncomfortable with the Cousin John marriage proposal situation. It just didn't seem right, and I think, you know, it's possible that Dickens wrote it for it not to seem right and for it to be kind of suspicious. 
from the outset, but definitely that kind of, you know, relationship and balance kind of situation comes across to an extent in Emma by Jane Austen. David Copperfield is number five. I think the general progression, the general pacing is very similar here. David Copperfield is the second longest, or it, it's the longest uh, Dickens book by word count. So it, yeah, I guess it's technically the longest <laughs> Dickens book, um, not by page number, but by word count. Um, and yeah, the, the pacing is very similar. The complexity is pretty similar too, in my opinion. And I enjoyed both, so I'm gonna put David Copperfield as a pretty obvious corollary. They're both later works of Dickens, so they share a lot of thematic material in common as well. Great Expectations is number six. There's that scene with the jelly bees where they're kind of like all in the house and there's all these kids everywhere and everything's dirty. And there's also a scene in Great Expectations where uh, the main character of Great Expectations is going to his tutor's house for the first time and all of the tutor's kids are like tumbling everywhere. That's sort of the expression used. Super similar in those respects. These kind of pivotal figures that come across that very... Um, they're like pivot scenes in the, in the plot and they are such a mess, but they end up being very helpful. And as we know in this novel, Caddy Jellybee ends up being really seminal to this. Pip. Pip is the name of the main character. I did remember. <laughs> Martin Chuzzlewit is not a book I've read by Charles Dickens, but it is number seven. I think, you know, it could be said for a lot of his earlier works too. I just used Martin Chuzzlewit as kind of the seminal example here, but there's kind of this like humor undertone that really mixes well with the, the dark undertones of the novel and you know there's like this spontaneous combustion bit there's like the ridiculousness of skimpole which i didn't find funny but i just found ridiculous and then you know volumnia deadlock and like what is she doing kind of situation so there's a lot of those like overdrawn caricature type characters in this book and i think that really does add to the satire and the humor of it and then number eight is a collection of short stories. We did a mini-series about them in February, but it's Poe's Detective Fiction. I mean, Inspector Bucket. I read, I was reading about this novel and sort of its contributions, and one of them, supposedly, is a contribution to detective fiction. And I thought that was super interesting. And, you know, Inspector Bucket and Inspector Bucket's wife being involved and sort of the meticulousness of that character and the uh, lassitude of that character I found to be really interesting um, and, you know, could very well be because of the time period this is coming out right alongside Poe's detective fiction, um, could really be a, another precursor to the inception of the detective novel. Alright, our fourth topic to this episode is the most loved or my most loved and most hated characters in the book. I'm not gonna say most hated, that's kind of mean, but you know, my most annoying, shall I say, characters in this book. I'm gonna start with the most annoying so we can end on a positive note here. My most annoying character by far was Mrs. Snagsby. Oh my goodness. This lady has such a nice husband. I really liked Mr. Snagsby, as I'll discuss 
in a second. But, man, is she a nasty woman in some respects. I mean, she, you know, she's kind of this strong female character, and I love how Dickens writes them, right? I mean, I love Mrs. Bagnet, for example. So, I mean, this woman is literally the charge of the household. She is the only thing keeping this household together in some ways. Mrs. Snagsby is sort of similar, but she just has this pitfall of she can't believe, you know, for some reason that she's not good enough or that this situation is not good enough. Whatever it is, she's got this root of jealousy. Neid. Der Neid in German. And it's like you know, it kind of destroys her until Mr. Bucket puts her in her place. So yeah, I, I couldn't stand Mrs. Snagsby. I was like, the whole time I was just, you know, biting my fingers. Like, why don't you just bring this up to your husband? You can talk to him about it. You know, he is, he's just, you know, in raptures about you and he would definitely discuss this with you. So most annoying, that is it by far. Second most annoying, Guppy. I think Guppy is just like, why? <laughs> he, yeah, he's just kind of, I don't want to say hopeless, but you know, he, he doesn't get the memo, and I think that's what's annoying to me about him, is he kind of harasses Esther, especially that those scenes in London where she's like at the theater and he's like watching her like dejected, like, man, you rejected me. Look at how I look because of this. And of course that's fielded through Esther's perspective, but it, yeah, to me it just shows a lot about his character that he's unwilling to let all of this go. And then at the very end of the novel, right, he proposes again. Like, come on, dude, did you get the hint? after basically catalyzing the death of her mother. Like, I mean, you know, Lady Dedlock's choice was prominent in this, of course, but, you know, Guppy played a role in that. And I'll just say my runner-up for this category of annoying is Mr. Skimpole. I wasn't personally super annoyed by him. Uh, people who have read this book, who I've talked to, who... I've seen online generally hate Skimpole. They generally think that he's kind of a useless character. I think there's a lot to analyze there and a lot to consider. And I think that Skimpole is a really interesting character for sure. So I think like sort of my interest in him superseded how much I was annoyed by him. I mean, it got cumbersome at points talking with Skimpole, right? And you kind of just, you read the section super fast and you're like, okay, let's get to the point here. But again, I wasn't annoyed with him so much as just like interested in how he can get away <laughs> with being himself. Characters I love. Woodcourt. Man, Woodcourt is awesome. What a great guy. Um, I really enjoyed reading about Woodcourt and sort of all of his contributions. And I think, you know, if there's anyone who has a purpose in this novel, and if there's anyone who, you know, I think what's interesting about him is he's pegged as this sort of religious figure throughout the book, like a saint kind of figure. And he's, I think, one of the most distant parties from the court case in that sense. So I think that's not a coincidence that he's so distant from the court case and is so good and so genuine. Um, so again, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, his lack of connection to the court case, but also his... Uh, kind of upstanding nature in the novel. Number five in this list, people I love, Crook. 
Um, I really liked Crook. I thought he was so funny. Uh, his cat was adorable, <laughs> even though the cat was mean. Uh, but you know, he's this like old man who has a slight hoarding issue and owns this like boarding house and is has a singular obsession with something that he can't really partake in because he can't read. He's obsessed with like the courts and court documents and he can't read and he sort of like, you know, is obsessively trying to figure out how to read and I think that's so interesting that and again, you know, the spontaneous combustion, like what? I mean, of all the things in this novel, right, that's like, that's one of the things that it's known for. And I think, you know, what a better character than Crook. But yeah, he just, he made me laugh. He was such a good contribution to the earlier half of the book, and I was so sad when he died, honestly, and man, that cat was left um, in that house, so. Anyway, I really liked Crook. I enjoyed him. Very entertaining to me. Lady Deadlock is the next person that I really loved in this book. I thought, you know, I, I kind of just had this empathy for her throughout the book, and I think there's a lot of different ways to read her, like sort of as this like person who took advantage of the whole situation and blah blah blah. I just I just see a woman trapped by her circumstances and making the best of them. And I thought that just kind of for the pain that she lived through, like how gritty is she, right? Um, not that she's a role model for me or anything, but yeah, she just kind of puts up with so much emotional turmoil. I think her, the evolution of her character and us getting to know what's going on inside of her throughout these many pages was fascinating to me and, you know, it was a good study. And also, of course, Sir Leicester Deadlock having full forgiveness the whole time and just having the same kind of empathy for her I think speaks a lot not only to their relationship but to the entwining of all of their roles in the novel. And my last character that I really liked uh, and of course you know I liked most of these characters these are just the ones that stick out to me but Boythorn I thought was so sweet in a lot of the novel maybe not to the, the deadlocks in particular but you know, he's got his little bird on his head and, you know, I mean, I might have been annoyed with him in the beginning of the novel, I'm not sure, but when I found out about him, his wife, you know, basically leaving him for no reason and not telling him that she was going to raise her sister's child, which was presumed dead, you know, I had that kind of same empathy for him. Like, you know, he's a good guy. He's been through a lot. So those are my characters. And to wrap up this episode here, y'all, we've got some fun facts about Bleak House, some of which I've already spoiled, but alas. Number one is that Bleak House is the only novel of Dickens's to have a female narrator, that is Esther. And again, I talk at length in, in the beginning of this episode about sort of my thoughts about female narration in this era, in this time period, I should say collection of years, mid-19th century, um, and I just, I super enjoyed this perspective from Dickens. I found it to be really refreshing, and it's, you know, it's not Pip, it's not Oliver, it's not David, who have a lot of similarities as it is. This is Esther, and this is an omniscient narrator. 
And of course, again, if you want the stat, fact number two, this is Bleak House is the longest book by page number of Dickens's and David Copperfield is his longest book by word count. So we have now on the show read both of the longest books by Charles Dickens, which I think is quite an accomplishment if you ask me. Number three, the most successful adaptations of Bleak House according to Britannica were the 1985 and the 2005 television miniseries. I'm not sure which one my roommate saw with her mother, but she saw one of them. I think it was the 1985 one and she said it was excellent. So I can attest at least personally to one or the other. And finally, Number four, another one that I accidentally spoiled, but this novel is another potential precursor to detective fiction, and it seems like the more we read in this time period, the more potential precursors to detective fiction we find, which I find very amusing and very cool as well. All right, that is the end of this episode and the end of our Bleak House series. We can release our breath. We have finally finished. Thank you all so much for hanging in with this series. I am so just excited and relieved to have finished. I'm so glad that we ended up reading this novel together. And like I said, it's just really one of my dearest, nearest and dearest Dickens books thus far that we've read. And it's been such a lovely experience. So thank you all so much for that. And I will see you in our next episode. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.